Our chapter 7 and our text this morning will be verses 31 to the end of the chapter. Mark 31 to 37. Mark writes under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Again he went out from the region of Tyre and came to Sidon to the Sea of Galilee within the region of Decapolis. They brought to him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty and they implored him to lay his hands on him. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself and put his fingers into his ears and after spitting he touched the tongue with the saliva. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh he said to him, Ephatha. That is, be opened. And the ears were opened, and the implement of his tongue was removed, and his, he began to speak plainly. And he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. They were utterly astonished, saying, He has done all things well. He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Let's go to the Lord in prayer before we go through our text this morning. Gracious Heavenly Father, again we pray that as we go to your word that you would first make us clean vessels to hear your word. We pray that you will again be honored as your word is brought forth. I pray that you will be protecting your word, that only what is true will be heard, and that again we will get a glimpse of Jesus Christ, that we might worship him and love him more that we might also worship you in, in more grandeur and splendor and with more passion. So, Lord, build your church this morning. Correct us where we need to be corrected. Encourage us where we need to be encouraged. And above all, may you be glorified in your name. Amen. Is God, uh, is God personal or impersonal? Is he personal or impersonal? I was reading on the internet and I happened to see an article where someone was debating whether God was personal or impersonal. And he went to great length to describe both sides and he went to great length to describe and he really landed on the idea that he figured God was personal because after all, it just seemed better. It just seemed better. But if we were to look at many of the religions, even many of the religions that took place during the time of the first century, we would see many, many gods that they worshiped that weren't personal at all. In fact, their only interaction with their people was to judge them in anger. Really, if you could describe their gods, they were vindictive and angry and judgmental. And so, their lives were spent most of the time just trying to make sure that they didn't fall under the judgment of their gods. They didn't want to get them angry because they didn't want to lose a loved one. They didn't want to lose their wealth, their health, whatever it was. And so they continued to try to appease this God who really had nothing to do with them outside of judging them. Well, it doesn't take very much to come forward into our time and realize that there are religions who are still teaching the verily the same thing. In fact, as we see the move of Islam across 
the world and we panic, we have a really a religion that is exactly in that same boat as those first century religions. We have a, a religion that is teaching that their God is monotheistic. Now we say, but our God is, we only have one God. But their idea is that God, their God is one, absolutely one, one individual, one person, completely set apart from everything, completely transcendent, completely separated from the world. And he is a God that actually is so separated that you can't even know him. In fact, you're not really even encouraged to know him because he's unknowable. And because he's unknowable, that means that you cannot really have any fellowship or talk with him or deal with him in, in any way. In fact, you don't even know if you have salvation till after you die because he will decide then. And then when you get to the point where you die, and let's say you get to go to where they, what they would describe as heaven, the end goal is not to be with him, but rather to be rewarded. In Christianity, however, our God is completely different. We talk about God being a trinity. A trinity. Three persons in one. And we actually state that if you do not believe in the trinity, you cannot be a Christian. You cannot be saved because it is that important. And here is one of the things that we draw, one of the principles and one of the foundational things that we understand about God being a trinity. This is how it works out practically. God is a fellowshipping God. God is someone who fellowships and wants relationship. We know this because God existed for eternity past in what? In the Trinity, in the fellowship of the Trinity. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in perfect harmony, in perfect fellowship, needing absolutely nothing. And then he created man, but he created man and he put him in the garden. What did God do? Fellowshiped with man. He created man to be in relationship with him. God wanted to be in relationship with man. God is interested in being in relationship with humanity. In fact, if we go a little bit farther, we understand that God the Father has chosen in eternity past those who he would save, those he would have intimate fellowship with. And so he is going to make that fellowship take place. He continues to be in relationship because he's going to be in a saving relationship with those that he has chosen. And he is intimately interested in them. And so the Christian God and the true God of the Bible is the one who is now one who is in desires relationship with his people. Now you might say, Pastor, we already know that. You're really just tell are you teaching Sunday school here? Because obviously we already know that God is relational. But you know what? There are times in our lives where we start to forget that God is, wants, desires to be personal in a personal relationship with us, that he is personally interested in us, and we start to feel as if somehow God is far away. And we hear big words like God is sovereign and God is in control and he, everything, he works everything out, but it seems so distant and so far away. 
And there can be times where we have struggles in our lives, we can have problems in our lives, we can have health issues, whatever that is, relationship issues, and we think, where is God in all of this? He seems so far away. Why can't I reach him? Why does he seem so far away? And yet this morning in our text, we're going to see Jesus Christ is interested in individuals. He's interested in personally being invested in your life. If you're a believer, he is, he is interested in every aspect of your life. If he's calling you to salvation, he's interested in you. Our God is not some distant demigod who is angry and vindictive, but he's a personal loving God who's interested in every aspect of your life. Now, we sometimes go so strong on the sovereignty of God and our need to love him and, and all of those things that we, we sometimes forget that God loved us first. He came to earth to save because he chose to. He's moving towards us. And so this morning, I hope as we go out from here and we get a glimpse of who Jesus Christ is and how he reflects God's character as he relates to us, we'll go out and encourage recognizing that Christ cares for us. And so this morning, we will see really three characteristics of Christ, three personal characteristics of Christ as he demonstrates his personal relationship with people. Well, as we come to the text then this morning, it really, as we begin this, this area, as we introduce, we see that Christ is still in Gentile territory. It says in verse 31, Again he went out from the region of Tyre and came to Sidon, to the Sea of Galilee, within the region of Decapolis. So here is Christ. We remember he has traveled up north. He's about 50 miles north, northeast, northwest, I'm sorry, of, of Capernaum. And he's gone up to Tyre and Sidon region. So he seems to be near, near Tyre, the city of Tyre. And now we see him. He says he goes to Sidon and, to the, and then over to the Sea of Galilee. Now, if you were to look on the map, what Jesus is really doing is he is going 20 miles north. And then he is going to go all the way back down and around to the far side of the Sea of Galilee on the east side of the Jordan River. On the, he's going to end up on the east side of the Sea of Galilee. Now this trip is over 120 miles. Some scholars have even suggested that this trip took about eight months. Eight months. Now I don't know where they got that from. But all we know is it's a very long walk. It'd be really like going to Port Perry from, but going through Coburg first, except on foot instead of your car. So this, this, is, a, this is a long trip and it's, it's a roundabout trip. And so as, as he is going then, he comes to the area called Decapolis. Now we should, in the back of our minds, think, hey, I've heard of that before. I've heard of Decapolis before. Decapolis is an area of 10 Gentile cities, mainly on the east side of the Jordan. And the last time we heard about Decapolis was when Christ was healing the demoniac. Remember, Christ went across the sea, he calmed the sea, he got to the place where the demoniac was, the man who had a legion of demons 
maybe up to 6,000 demons inside of him. And Christ casts out the demons in what is one of the most spectacular displays of power as he casts out so many demons. They go into the pigs. The pigs run into the water and perish. Everybody in the area comes to look and see, and they're just so excited that Jesus is there. No. What do they say? Depart from us. Leave us. We don't want you here. They're scared. They're scared of his power. They want to stay in their sin. They don't want to be dealing with Christ and what he says. And so they ask him to go away. And in spite of seeing this man miraculously delivered, this man who was uncontrollable, this man who was running around naked, this man who was insane, even though he's seated, clothed, and in his right mind, they want nothing to do with it. They say, go. And Jesus gives them what they want. And the only one who responds to him is the man who has had the demons cast out. And he says, I want to go with you. I want to be your disciple. And Jesus did not let him go. And he said to him, go home to your people and report to them what great things the Lord has done for you. And how he had mercy on you. And so Jesus sends out the first Gentile missionary and he sends him back to his hometown area. And it says, the man in obedience, and he went away and began to proclaim in Decapolis what great things Jesus had done for him and everyone was amazed. And so here's this man faithful to the message that Christ had given him. He goes back to that area and he starts to proclaim over and over and over again what Christ has done for him. And now Christ returns to that same area. Another mercy of Christ. He's been there, right? He, do, he owes these people nothing. He doesn't have to go. They've rejected him once. He didn't have to go in the first place. They've rejected him, yet he condescends to go back. But this time it's different. This time it's different. They're ready for him. It says in verse 32, They brought him one who was deaf and spoke with difficulty, and they implored him to lay hands on him. And so now, when Christ returns to this area, instead of them saying, go away, they are already ready for him. They've heard of what he's done. There's fruit to the ministry of this first missionary because they are now, their, their hearts are hardened. I mean, softened. Got that backwards. Their, their hearts are softened. They've had time to reflect They've seen what Christ has done. They have time to recognize the immense power of, that was demonstrated among them. And now when Christ returns, they recognize him. And right away, they bring him this man. They, speaking of his friends or a group of people around him who cared for this man, they bring him to Christ. He's deaf. He cannot hear. It says it's hard, hard to speak. It seems like either he had a speech impediment something tying up his tongue, or maybe a stutter, or it simply could be that because he could not hear, he could not speak clearly. Whatever it is, this man is deaf, and he cannot speak clearly. And so these men come and they implore Christ, a strong word, they're begging him, they're putting themselves on his mercy, 
Heal this man. Put your hands on him. In other words, heal him. This was Christ's main way of healing, right? Most of the time we see him what? Laying hands on people. This is how he did it. And for them, they knew that. And they said, please, just put your hands on him. Heal him. Restore him. Well, now we come to the first, our first, really our first picture of Jesus Christ and how he is a personal God. First of all, I want you to notice that he deals with this man individually. Take a look at verse 33. Jesus took him aside from the crowd by himself. Now, you're probably going, yeah, so what? <laughs> right? That's a pretty simple little statement. Well, it is, but it's also very profound. Jesus isn't interested at this point in impressing the crowd. And I'm sure Christ took him aside because he didn't want the whole crowd to get excited because he healed someone. Maybe he's trying to protect this man from becoming an object of everybody's curiosity. But Jesus takes him aside. And here's, here's what I want you to notice. Jesus Christ has really been given about 33 and a half years, depending on how you want to age him on earth. He's a busy man. He's got disciples who are slow of learning and he needs to teach them. And yet here's a man that he stops in front of him with a need and Christ is willing to take him and to take him aside and give him time. Christ is saying to him, you are important to me. I have time for you. Now that is, that's really profound. Now, I want you to just take that out. When Christ, when God calls people to salvation, does he call them in groups? Does he call them in nations? Does he call them in families? No, he doesn't. He calls them individually. He doesn't just do a scattergun spray. He doesn't just go willy-nilly. He calls individuals to salvation. God is interested in individuals. Think about that. If he called you to salvation, he did it individually. Now listen to this. Psalm 147 says, He counts the numbers of stars. He gives names to them all. Now this is how invested God is. He created the universe, he created you, and he created all of the stars, he put them in his place, and he knows all their names because he gave them names. Now think about this. He created man in his image. This is the peak of his creation. How much more is he interested in you than he is in the stars? John 14, John 10, 14 says, I am the good shepherd. I know, I know my own and my own know me. Even as the father knows me and I know the father, I lay down my life for the sheep. Let that sink in. He knows you. Okay, he knows you. Not that he knows about you. 
He knows you intimately. How do I know that he knows you intimately? What did it say in verse 15? Now listen to this. Listen to this very carefully. This is absolutely profound. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father, that's how much he knows you. Listen to that. I am the good shepherd. I know my own. My own know me. Even as the Father knows me and I know the Father. Think about that. He knows you like he knows the heavenly father. That's how intimately he knows you. That's stunning. So never believe that God is this removed God who is not interested in you, who's forgotten about you, and somehow has kicked you to the curb. When troubles come, when trials come, when anything happens in your life, you can cling to this that he knows you intimately. You're just not some number on assembly line. You're not just part of a group of the elect or the church or whatever you want to say. You're not just one of the Christians. He knows you. He knows you. What a comfort. Infinite almighty God knows you. And the next thing I want you to notice about Christ, not only did he deal with him individually, but I want you to notice that he dealt with him uniquely. Uniquely. Listen to this. He says in verse 33, and putting and put his fingers in his ears, and after spitting, he touched his tongue with the saliva. Now you're probably going to say, I'm glad he, he's unique because I don't want him dealing with me that way, right? And for some of you mothers, you're going, oh, that's not sanitary. That's just not right. But the question is, what is Jesus doing here? What is he doing here? This is kind of strange, don't you think? You try to stick your finger in my ear and I'll probably give you a cuff, Right? So what is, what is Jesus doing? Is, there, is this some mystical thing? Is there something in the saliva that makes it healing? What is he doing here? Well, remember, this man is deaf. He cannot hear. And Christ is now really simply, and I know, I know it'd be nice to have some great revelation. I, he's just doing really like sign language with this guy. I'm going to what? Touch your ears. I'm going to, what? Touch your tongue. Really? He's just demonstrating to the man what he's about to do. And maybe he's trying to increase this man's faith. But Jesus is just simply dealing with this man where he's at. He's simply communicating with him where he's at and simply give, telling him what is about to take place. Now what you'll notice is that you will never find anyone else in Scripture who's dealt this way. It's completely unique. And you know what? God is the same way when he deals with us. He doesn't treat us like we're all the same. He, he doesn't just stamp us out as if, and this is the same response. Right? He uniquely responds to us where we're at. This morning, 
I want you guys to think about, go back to thinking about how you were saved. I want you to look at all of the circumstances that took place in your life as you came to salvation. And if we were to bring you all up here and share, each one of you would have a different story. Some of you would say, you know what, I, I, was, I was born into a Christian family. In fact, that's all I know. I just remember hearing the stories. I recognized that I, I was in need of a savior. I never doubted it at all. Some of you are going to say, you know what? I remember I lived next door to a Christian couple and they were just so nice. And there, there was such a peace about them and there was just something about them and it just kept bothering me and bothering me until I asked and they gave me the gospel and I understood who Jesus was. Somebody else is going to say, you know what? I was listening to a preacher on the radio. In fact, is I used to turn on the radio, listen to that preacher so I could mock him. And one day I turned on that radio and he gave the gospel and the Lord opened my eyes and struck me down and I was saved right there. Right? Each one of us has a different testimony. Some through friends, some through circumstances, whatever it is. But God deals with us exactly where we're at. He comes to us. He calls us. He makes us his own. And you know what? Even today, if you're a believer, God has not stopped dealing with you uniquely. He is still sending circumstances into your life. He is still dealing with issues in your life. And he is still meeting you exactly where you're at. He doesn't give my grace to you and your grace to somebody else. He doesn't give his strength to someone else. He gives it to you. He doesn't give the knowledge that you need to somebody else or the other way around. He meets you where you're at. And never forget that we have a God who is in the process because he is interested in you. He is in a relationship with you and he was meeting you uniquely your needs, what you need, where you're at for your life. That's a comfort, isn't it? He's not just some faraway God who just, you know, I, I got you in. Now I'm going to hope it turns out for you. It's not just that he knows you intimately, but he is now actually what? Working in you uniquely, meeting you where you're at. And so there is nothing in your life that comes about where he cannot meet you, where he cannot help you, where he will not address your circumstances. So we've seen that he meets us individually. We see here that he also touches us uniquely. And then the third thing I want us to see is Christ's compassion for us. And looking up to heaven with a deep sigh, simply that, simply that. Here is Jesus. He's about to heal this man and he stops, looks to heaven, maybe to show the man where the power is coming from, sending a prayer he's still under submission to the father 
But it says he sighs. He prays and he sighs. The word here is groan, a deep sigh. Here is Christ with incredible empathy for the man in his position. Think about that. Jesus is not just going to meet the need, but he is sympathetic to the problem. He doesn't just say, well, it doesn't really matter to me, but I can kind of see if I, if I, do, if I look at the scoreboard, uh, deafness is bad, you know, be, not being able to speak is bad, and if I fix it, that's good. He's not, he's not some emotional robot, but he's rather someone who feels for us in our problems. Right? When, he, when it came to salvation, God didn't just look and say, oh, <laughs> they're in deep trouble. They're under my wrath. Wow, that's, that's too bad. Right? He didn't do that. He had compassion. That's what is what we call mercy, right? Because he went to meet the misery of those who were under his wrath. Therefore, he sent his son to die on the cross to pay the way that we might be restored to him. He had compassion. Hebrews 4.12 says he is touched with the feeling of our infirmities. In other words, he sympathizes with our problems. He's not someone who's just sitting there and doesn't care, but he is our high priest who intercedes for us because he knows our weaknesses. This is not an un, a God who is far off, but one who understands what we go through, one who is compassionate for us. He wants to help us. He doesn't just sit there, but he comes to help. First Peter says, Therefore humble yourself under the mighty hand of God that he may exalt you in the proper time, casting all your anxieties on him. What? Because he cares. Because he cares. God cares. He cares for us deeply. This is why Christ prays for us in heaven as our high priest. He cares for us. Well, his compassion doesn't just stop here with him feeling bad. It says in the next part of the verse, and he said to him, epitha, that is, be opened. He says to this man, listen, this is an Aramaic term. He says, be opened. Speaking to his ears and to his mouth, be opened. And it says, and the impotent impediment of his tongue was removed, and he began to speak plainly. Christ's compassion did not stop with feeling sorry for him. His compassion moved him to what? Do good for him, to heal him. Literally in the Greek, the chain of his tongue was broken. It was loosed, and now this man could speak and hear. Maybe for the first time he heard the words be open as Christ spoke, and now he heard again. Just like Christ, 
just like God in salvation, he simply what? Opens our eyes. This is our God. Be opened. So too, our God is sympathetic to us. It moves him to help us. He doesn't just leave us on our own. He's not like Allah who leaves you to go and languish all your life. He actually now gives us power. Not only does he save us, but he now empowers us for living and he is always keeping us. What a wonderful God we have. Well, I want you to see the, re the response of the people to him. In verse 36, Then he gave them orders not to tell anyone, but the more he ordered them, the more widely they continued to proclaim it. <laughs> it's pretty typical, isn't it? Human nature. You can almost can't blame them in some ways they've just seen something miraculous and yet really a clear picture of humanity isn't it here they are they're willing to give him homage they're going to they're going to say great things about him but they're not willing to obey they're not willing to obey and so here's Christ the picture here is he keeps telling them don't tell anyone don't tell anybody and they go out and they just keep telling everyone and so again the message gets out that Christ is there and he cannot keep it quiet and then it says in verse 37 they were utterly astonished they were utterly astonished they were amazed the idea here is it's a very strong word. It means above all measure, over the top, super abundantly amazed, astonished. If we were to put it in the vernacular, their minds were blown. They just had never seen anything like this. They were amazed by Jesus Christ. And we too should be amazed by him. We should be amazed that he is interested in us. And then they say he has done all things well. In other words, he has done, done things that are morally good, but he's done things that are beneficial, and he's done them well. When Jesus healed, he didn't end up with people with just a little bit better eyesight. They had complete eyesight. He didn't heal the lame that now they just limped. They were completely healed. Withered arms were put back. Demons were completely gone. Leprosy was, and disease were completely healed fully. He says he does all things well. Their second response, he makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. And again, you can hear the echoes of Isaiah 35 here. When Christ comes again, he promised when he sets up his kingdom that they will hear, the deaf will hear and the mute will speak. And so these people again are responsible are responding in utter astonishment. They recognize what he's done. They recognize what he can do. But tragically, they stop short of understanding who he is. They're astonished, but they stop short of adoration and understanding who he is. And they stop short of a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. 
And so this morning, the challenge for us is this. Do we see Christ as amazing? Do we see a Christ who is interested in us? Not some God who is far away and distant and could care less. Some angry God who only intervenes to punish. But do we see this God, a God who's interested in you individually, who called you individually, who knows you intimately, a God who is dealing uniquely in your life, who drew you to himself uniquely, who deals with you as a person, an individual, meeting your needs, giving you the grace that you need and the knowledge that you need and the power to live in obedience to him every day. Do you recognize that God cares for you, that he's compassionate and that his compassion moves him to help you? That he's not just some cold distance God, but he is, he is intimately involved in your life. In fact, I would go this far. He cares more about you than you do. And that's saying something, at least if you're like me, right? He cares for you. He moves for you. And so we should be like these people. We should be amazed. We should be astounded. We should fall in adoration and say he has done all things well. Was his salvation not great? Was it not complete? Was it not sufficient? Did he not give you everything that you needed when you came to him? Does he not continue to give you the things that you need? Does he not continue to give you the grace to live in obedience to him? He makes even the deaf to hear and the mute to speak. Right? He took us from being spiritually dead and deaf and dumb to being able to worship him and to see him and to hear him. What a marvelous God. So this morning, let us worship him. Let us continue to recognize that he still is doing things well. He is still interested in individuals. He's still compassionate. He's still uniquely dealing with us. Let us love him. Let us worship him. Let us adore him. Let us make his name great. Let's close in prayer this morning. Heavenly Father, we again thank you for a picture of Jesus Christ. We thank you that he reflects you and you reflect him. We thank you that Jesus is a personal savior that he is interested in individual people he knows them intimately that he is compassionate to meet their need and that he is uniquely dealing with each one so that they might have be drawn to him in salvation and to live life the Christian life in obedience to him and his power May we never forget that you are close, you are not far away. May we always be reminded when we feel alone, feel isolated and far away from you. May we come to this text and be reminded again of your love and your care for us. We thank you for that. May you be glorified in your name. Amen.